DJ Simulationistas. So, with Dr. D, Dan Raymer, and Dr. J, Janice Palaganis, coming at you from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. So buckle up your mannequin, and let's roll. Welcome to DJ Simulationista Sup. You're here with Janice Pelianis and Dan Raymer. Sup. Janice Pelianis. Sup, Dan. So I am loving this lovely afternoon with you in the Raymer household. Uh, the, the kitchen, beautiful kitchen with all the beautiful birds outside. And most beautiful of all, our wonderf- wonderful friend and colleague. Laura Rock. Laura Rock. (laughs) So our colleague, Laura Rock, is an intensivist at a nearby hospital here, uh, Beth Israel Deaconess. And we love Laura. She teaches with us in our IMS course and is really a communications expert. Um, That seems to be her passion. So uh, that's that's how I look at her anyways. So the coolest thing about Laura, there's so many cool things about Laura, but... uh, (laughs) um, Laura's last name is an interesting story. So Laura Rock isn't your husband's no, real we, we, name. No, we both have maiden names. Uh-huh. Yeah. So <laughs> can you tell us how that happened? Janice, do you know this? I do. It's awesome. <laughs> well, I guess it could be an example of conflict resolution and negotiation. Uh-huh. Um, it started with a coin, a Euro coin toss when a when a maitre d' in Paris called me Madame Kaplan when we were dating. Uh-huh. And we got into a conversation about what we would do if, with our names if we ever got married. Uh-huh. And I said, well, you know, it would really surprise most people I know to hear me say this, but I think it's really nice to share a name. Because most of my friends and my two sisters did not change their names. And so Mitch was a little surprised, and I said, you know, the thing is, I, I don't want to change mine. <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of got into this agreement that yeah it would be kind of nice to to share a name but neither of us wanted to to change ours and so um you know laura beth kane it's a little bit soap opera like kind of a hard name to give up Uh, so then ultimately we got married didn't change our names and then i was pregnant and we decided we wanted to share a name and the names in the running were kane my maiden name kaplan his maiden name Brody, his mother's maiden name, and Rock, my mother's maiden name. He decided it was a little too emasculating to change his name to mine because, you know, he is from Baltimore where men just don't do that sort of thing. And (laughs) I didn't really want to use his mother's maiden name for a variety of reasons. And so it was down to Kaplan or Rock. And when Noah was born, Mitch was very emotional and decided that it would be more of a compromise if we both changed our name. It was also a means of honoring my grandfather, Sam Rock, who was a Polish immigrant who was a really incredible person and who had two daughters who changed their name. Well, I've uh, played tennis with Mitch, and uh, I know on the court he's a rock. Well, and we've also, you know, we decided with a name like Mitch Rock, if, you know, selling foam didn't work out, he could always be a porn star. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Laura, thanks for joining us. We have been 
referring to you on so many of our podcasts and especially tied to the phrase emotion before cognition. To me, that is like your phrase. I love it. I live by it. You and Dan have been working on uh, a new workshop. And I'm really interested in hearing more about it because I've only seen the title and uh, I'd love to allow our listeners to hear where you're going and in your expertise and your kind of Mm -hmm. mastery. So Dan introduced me as a communication expert and I am very passionate about communication and that really started from thinking about how physicians and nurses communicate with patients and families in a manner that builds trust and allows us to communicate efficiently. After many years of that work, I came to the realization that even if individual clinicians use behaviors and phrases that promote trust, it's really hard for patients and families to feel a sense of trust when there isn't trust among the team. I also noticed in giving talks around the country on trust that the parts of the talk that resonated most with the audience, with clinicians in the audience, was how we feel when people respond to comments or questions with kind of false reassurance and these sort of quick responses that really prevent us from feeling heard and prevent a sense of like, I've got your back or I'm in this, we're in this together. So that work on communicating with patients and families really got me more interested in thinking about communication among team members, interprofessional and interdisciplinary. This really clicks with our work at CMS because at CMS, we, we really think about human factors and how if we really want to make a difference in the lives of patients and in the joy in our work, you know, this really isn't going to happen as much through biomedical technology advances as it is through basic communication improvements. So we got really interested in thinking about applying business techniques in negotiation to conflict at the bedside and understanding what it is about the way we're communicating now that needs attention and what what are some simple interventions that we can try to introduce that can make people communicate more effectively and, and more satisfyingly in a way that actually makes us feel better about who we work with and makes patients safer. Because when we have conflict at the bedside, the patient experiences that and it's really hard for them to feel a sense of trust in the process of their care when they can see that the team members hate each other. Oh, I so agree. I mean, I I just think back to the emergency department and when I would work with a certain tech or when they would go in the room with me and I, if I had a really great relationship with them, there would be banter. It's a comfortable atmosphere. The patient feels much more comfortable. And when it's someone I, I don't know or maybe don't like, I do notice that it's different. It's a different experience for the patient. So what can you, I mean, what have you learned from studying this and What concepts can we kind of give to our listeners now that they could try out, hopefully before the workshop, and if they attend the workshop, can can share with you? So the main theme of of the workshop is about integrative bargaining. So it's borrowing on uh, work uh, from the Harvard Negotiation Project, which is in the law school here at Harvard. They've written several books Getting mm-hmm. to Yes is a uh, is a maybe a familiar one to some of our readers. The concepts behind it are very similar, very analogous to the concepts that we 
uh, use and have espoused in debriefing. And the notion of integrative bargaining is that when you're in a uh, in conflict with another person about what to do or how to interpret something or uh, what the next steps are. The typical response of most human beings is called win-lose bargaining. So you, you try to bargain with that person, you convince them that you're right or that your solution is better uh, and that doing it your way is better than doing it their way, hoping that they'll give in and you will win and they will lose. And that kind of bargaining happens all the time in our lives and uh, uh, usually leaves people with bad feelings, not necessarily the best solution. You may win, but the cost of winning is excessive and the repercussions in the future are also damaging. So the notion is that you need to strive for win-win bargaining, trying to find a way that both of you can feel like you've been heard, that your interests have been met, and that you come up with a solution that is better than either one of the solutions that was originally proposed. People usually espouse their positions that is, they say, this patient needs to go to the floor, or we need to give uh, this patient um, uh, a beta blocker, and the other person states this their position. This patient is not getting a beta blocker. <laughs> yes, this patient needs a beta blocker. Look at their heart rate. Impractical and inappropriate. This patient is not getting a beta blocker while he's on my service. So Laura and I are demonstrating uh, wait, 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 hold bargaining, on. I love it. Bargaining. You, uh, you didn't include me in this role play, and I feel so left out as the patient. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just, I'm hearing you argue, but I ha did you guys see my chart? I'm already on a beta blocker. Oh, you're the patient. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously having this conversation in front of the patient is probably not the best, uh, uh, best thing to do. <laughs> The, the notion here is that Or maybe we, having the conversation in front of the patient and acknowledging that and including that might actually be a better form of negotiation. Absolutely. The problem is that we tend to... Medicine seems to reward the winner, mm. like the person who sort of seems the smartest in the room or comes up with the diagnosis quicker or kind of wins the argument. And we have this culture that tends to celebrate that win. And actually, there's the vast majority of what we do in medicine actually has a lot of uncertainty, and there often isn't a right answer. And there are multiple approaches to deal with any clinical problem that we see. And we fail to acknowledge that uncertainty and this, the possibility of multiple different approaches. And when we announce these decisions or these, these positions, like declarations, without any explanation, we really don't learn from one another and we don't think through any other creative options. So what tools do you are you going to be providing to the participants? Because I, I have two questions. First is, you know, I always like to leave a workshop with some kind of tool or something that I can practice in a practical sense. And then the second, my second thing is, 
So much of this has everything to do with visiting your inner self and and just being flexible and being respectful that there's other perspectives out there. And sometimes that's the more difficult thing to do. So any thoughts on those two things? You know, it's interesting. I taught this session yesterday to the anesthesia surgical critical care fellows at BI. When I proposed some of the ideas that we're describing in this workshop, they basically said, well, this isn't going to work if the person you're talking to is a jerk. Like if you you could come at this um, with all kinds of new communication skills, but if they just won't change their position and they're a jerk, that won't be successful. And some of what we want to teach is, is coming from Diana McLean Smith's book, The Elephant in the Room, where she basically argues that when you just sort of resign yourself to bad teamwork because of the bad personality of the person you have to deal with, you're giving them a lot of power and you're, you're failing to recognize how much you can change the relationship just by naming the situation and, and using your own skills of sharing perspective, being curious. There was a lot of skepticism by these fellows, but by suggesting that we can model holding others in high regard and having high standards for how we approach our patients, that over time we can influence those relationships and the outcomes of those conflicts, even if we feel like, you know, we can't, we don't have power over the other person's reactions or their personality. One thing that's so interesting about what Laura is describing is that even jerks have interests. Absolutely. <laughs> and their interests may not be the ones that you like so much. They may want attention. They may want stature. They may want uh, unbridled uh, respect. They may want to get out of the hospital. They may be tired of what they're doing right. and they want to uh, uh, work on something else. So I think one important thing in this in this workshop that we hope to accomplish is to get people to distinguish between positions and interests. So interests are what you really want deep down, the kind of global thing that's driving your position. So your position is what you say you want, but what you really want is something bigger than what you say in general. Can you give an example with the beta blockers or? Sure. Uh, well, or anything else? the beta blocker one? I can't. Well, I can think okay. of so. Oh, okay. So my uh, my interest in uh, in in the position I stated that this patient needs a beta blocker is that I'm going to be on service for the next four hours, and uh, I recently had a patient who developed dysrhythmias, and I'm really afraid of this patient's heart rate being so high and I just want to get through the next four hours of my shift without a catastrophe. So that's my real interest. I've got lots of pressure on me. There are lots of patients here today. I haven't been on service for quite some time. I'm feeling a little rusty. I'm a little frightened. Those are my interests. Those are the things that drive me to make this absolute statement that I want to uh, beta blocker for this patient. And Laura, what's your interest? This patient has soft blood pressure. I'm worried about um, her having to be to, to receive even additional therapy if her blood pressure drops further. 
And she's, we've already introduced several new medications today, and I don't want to kind of put her in a position of polypharmacy within such a short period of time, and I just don't think it's really necessary, and less is more. That's my philosophy of practice. So, so if you get down to our, to our kind of basic interests, mine have to do with an immediate safe place, and Laura's has to do with uh, combating polypharmacy, and so we each have those interests. Maybe we can come up with a way to adjust this patient's med- current medications that avoid the polypharmacy and that will make me feel safe that this patient's going to survive through my shift. And so I'll take your patient to the ICU. <laughs> so maybe that solution of, uh, of Laura accepting this patient into the ICU is a bigger solution than giving a beta blocker or not giving a beta blocker. And so the idea here is sometimes the solution is uh, a bigger, bigger pie than one that needs to be split in half. Got um, it. And so that's the notion here that, that um, by doing integrative bargaining, that's called integrative bargaining, where we integrate our interests to find a new solution, uh, that's what we're, we're trying to get across in this workshop. One of the key factors to make this successful is linking this approach with our basic assumption in that we have to assume that everyone has interests, everyone's interests have value to them, even if we don't think they're important. And I think that maybe in our workshop, we'll have people try to guess what are the possible interests that aren't being revealed on either side that we haven't learned because we haven't explored. And and some of them are kind of hard to say out loud. And even maybe use non-clinical examples because we could use this approach in any conflict or any negotiation. It could be about anything, where you're going to dinner or where you're going on vacation or who's picking up your kids after school. So I think it could be about anything. I feel like we see this time and time again in debriefings, and it's such a powerful technique in especially interprofessional debriefings when you start feeling frozen as a debriefer and you're afraid that uh, there's conflict that's going to arise or arguments. And, and just by simply highlighting the difference in their interests and then highlighting as well the common goal. Adults are just problem solvers and knowing what other people's interests are, they put it together like a puzzle. Okay, this is your interest. This is your interest. We still have to keep the patient safe. What What are you guys going to do? I mean, in my experience, it seems like it, it's one of the most powerful techniques. What I am going to bring us back to is the concern that of your attendees at your last workshop, mm-hmm. Laura, because that is always a concern of mine, too. I think it's it's pretty rare. You know, what can we do? There's only so much control that we have over a conversation. And I know one of the things that we talk about is using vulnerability. And the more vulnerable and honest you are, the more likely you're, the person with whom you're speaking will also be honest and vulnerable and be able to tell you what their interests are. But what happens when they're just like, you know... Screw you. <laughs> Do you guys talk about that in your workshop? We did. 
I think that it's a lot more compelling to make the argument that the fact is the patient is there. So when you're at the bedside, you have this added incentive to not say, just screw you. Uh, one of the examples that the resident came up with was a conflict between a physician and a nurse where they were really not on the same page with what was best for the patient, and they were having this argument in front of the patient's family. And they really had a misunderstanding. Like I think that they just didn't, they didn't have a shared understanding of what was best for the patient, but the way they were talking to each other was pretty disrespectful, and that gave the family a really negative impression of how the team was working together. So by pointing that out and helping them realize that if they had shared those misunderstandings in a respectful way by taking a breath and having curiosity and um, thinking about how that conversation may be affecting the other people in the room, they could have had a really different outcome and, and a really different feeling of willingness to continue working with that other professional. Jenny Rudolph describes this as the kind of Jedi mind training of, of when we're emotionally triggered and having to, because, you know, all this stuff is a lot easier to, to say than do. I mean, I get my buttons pushed too, and I feel, you know, I feel emotionally triggered too when I'm in a conflict with someone who I feel is disrespecting me. And it's, it's hard to do, and it takes practice. And I think having an identity, a sense of identity, like I am going to be a person who approaches conflict with respect and curiosity, and then taking the whatever reset steps we need, take a breath, vent to a friend for a few seconds, whatever it is that we need to do to, to, you, to remember these skills that we have and the language that we can use to promote a sense of trust and a sense of mutual um, a, you know, a realization that we have this mutual goal of giving the best possible care to our patient. What about um, setting the stage? Do you talk anything about that? Because I, I would think even if you were having a uh, conversation with someone who you, with whom you enjoy working around differing perspectives on that patient's care, it might still be seen as conflict. And if you were to kind of set the stage and say, we're just going to have a short conversation here, um, it might sound like we're arguing. It's because we care about where your health is going and we're trying to decide together. Like, do you talk about setting the stage? In front of the patient? In front of the patient. You know, we haven't planned for that yet. And I do think that you know, in everything that we do with patients and family members, we have to be incredibly transparent. I mean, patients and families have no idea why we do what we do, why we ask what we ask, why we ask 10 steps of the review of systems when they only came in for cellulitis of their toe. We really <laughs> have to say, I'm asking all these questions because it's it's just part of our, our full history and physical exam. And, and so don't be alarmed that I'm asking you about your breathing and chest pain when you came in for this infection of your toe. Any place we can add transparency and clarity into the process is going to be very calming and build trust by the patient or family towards the team. So absolutely. And I think we should be doing that for each other. You know, if I look at my husband and say, what time are you getting home this every night this week? <laughs> and I, I don't say... I, you know, I want to go out with a friend and I need to know what night is going to be a good night to do that. Can you tell me what your schedule is this week? If I just sort of blindly, you know, sort of ask questions without any 
explanation about why, it's just kind of off-putting. And especially when you're dealing with people who are in the crisis of their life, it's very off-putting. They have no idea why we come at them with all kinds of questions. And so I think especially if you're going to have a, a conversation with a colleague that sounds like conflict and disagreement, no question it should be, it should be you know, framed with some explanation. So Janice, do you think that we should tell our listeners that even though it seems like you and I are in conflict all the time, <laughs> that we actually respect each other and like each other and um, I think you should. all that sort of stuff? I mean, I think your laughter suggests some psychological safety, uh, but you really can't overframe. Uh, well, <laughs> well, Janice, <laughs> you're my friend, no matter what. No matter what anyone says. And Dan thrives on conflict. <laughs> would it be fun to um no. would it be fun to briefly role play a traditional approach and a integrative bargaining approach to some silly conflict? Sure. Let's try to do oh, that. Oh, that'd be great. Clinical right. or non clinical? Uh I think uh I think clinical. This patient is not getting intubated. This patient is not uh, uh, is a, is a risk for aspiration. Uh, if they aspirate, then they're going to your ICU forever. Uh, I think we need to intubate them before trouble occurs. It doesn't make sense. This patient can't be intubated, and and that's that's the absolute final word on that. I mean, we can just you can't get me a laryngoscope. Can you get me a laryngoscope? It because is, it is I, this really inappropriate to, be... to intubate this patient. And it is, it's, it's really offering bad care. It's totally appropriate. It's a road to nowhere. It's, She's not going to get better. And I really don't think it's what she wants. She certainly won't get better if we don't intubate her. She has a chance. We're trying to give her a chance. Uh, and so uh, if we put a tube well, in, I think it's assault. a tube costs $2. Guys, it's not a big are we thing. intubating or not intubating? I can't work with this person. Uh, uh, can you just get me a laryngoscope and stop okay. asking so okay. many questions? How did that conversation feel? Really frustrating. Yeah, I mean, uh, clearly we weren't getting anywhere. We both had strong positions. I'm hoping that, uh, you know, Laura will uh, will um, be going home soon and I can come back <laughs> and put an endotracheal tube in this patient. Uh, and I'm really worried I'm going to come in in the morning and see an endotracheal tube in this patient. Yeah, I. it just felt like you guys weren't even um, talking to each other. No, and I feel like, like I could have just I, I could have just a put a wall and see Dan. My, I'm just going to be filled with dread. And I even wonder, you know, somewhere in the middle, it just seemed like you didn't even need to listen because you were just constantly saying whatever you both thought individually. Yeah, yeah. In in, in uh, win lose bargaining, you're often wind up talking to yourself, making your yeah. own arguments to yourself. You're the only one who's going to be convinced, and so uh, it feels good to uh, hear yourself. Uh, win your own argument. And it does seem like the argument is intubate or not intubate. But in reality, there's a lot more going on. There's a lot more to it. All right. I want to hear it. I want to hear your uh, negotiation, integrative bargaining. So, Dan, um, I'd like to talk about our approach 
for this patient and her respiratory failure. Yeah, she needs I've, to be intubated. I've heard you say that you think she needs to be intubated, and I'm concerned about that because she's been intubated twice in the last month, and I think she has a an irre- irreversible respiratory failure, and that intubating her again is only going to prolong her dying process and and this whole this whole difficult period. And I, I really don't think it's in her best interest. So I'm, I'm concerned about intubating her again. And, and I'm curious how you hear that. Well, uh, uh, okay. So that's interesting. I haven't been meeting with her family. Uh, you have, yeah. but from the anesthesiologist point of view, I'm here. Uh, I can intubate her now. It'll protect her airway. Her natural causes will uh, take her to where she needs to be. Uh, Don't you think it would be cruel to her not Mm. to put a tube in? So my concern is that my concern is really caring for her and and giving her the care that is consistent with, with her wishes. And I'm concerned that she has been through a lot and that intubating her again, although it would get her through the next 24 hours, is just going to prolong this process. And I'm, I'm worried about doing that, even if it's sort of the immediate medical obvious thing to do. I just don't think in the big picture it's going to help her. So what does the family think? Because I don't want the family to be upset if they, you know, they seem pretty knowledgeable to me. If I don't put a tube in, how am I going to explain that to them? So pause. Now I'm going to ask you about this one. Okay. So I'm hearing you say that you're concerned about explaining what's going on to the patient's family. So my interest is doing things that are medically uh, indicated. I don't want to get into territory where I could be uh, accused of uh, negligent practice, be sued. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of there to provide a service. My interest is providing that service and uh, doing it in a medically um, uh, appropriate and and successful way. So I felt like I heard I heard that interest. What Dan did you think was Laura's interest? What did you hear from her? Well, Laura was you know pretty obviously thinking of this in a bigger picture way. She was thinking about the this patient's end of life uh, process and the family's view of that. She's been working with the family. She wants to come up with a solution that will lead to this patient's death with dignity. And, uh, and the respiratory failure is, you know, uh, part of that process. So, you know, being able to observe the conversation, I thought it was really interesting how, how this second go, it really felt like you had to listen to each other. There was this nature in that conversation where you had to listen. It actually amplifies the need to listen. And then what I liked about it was, at some point in the conversation, visually, I could see that there was this pause. And at that point, there was a transition where you were both now trying to figure out the dilemma of how do we move forward? Like it, it almost compelled action mm-hmm. by talking about that. And I thought that was, that was really awesome to just observe. Did you feel that? 
Yeah, and I think that it's making me realize that in our work on this method, we're going to have to really incorporate ways to help the other person feel heard and ways to efficiently incorporate what their interests are with my own. And it has to be pretty quick because these kinds of things happening at the bedside don't we don't have hours to sit around and discuss and negotiate. Mm-hmm. We actually have to, you know, this patient's in respiratory failure and maybe dying and so we don't we have to do this efficiently and in a way that helps both of us feel heard and respected. So I suppose the big question in our our little improv skit here is uh you know what where where do we go? So we both heard each other, we both have some understanding of each other's interests. So what is the integrative bargain here? Uh, does this patient get intubated and ventilated and dies by turning off the ventilator? Uh, does the patient go to hospice and we uh, accept that their respiratory failure uh, is going to occur mm-hmm. and we decide on how to medicate them so that they can tolerate that? You and know, maybe, I mean, in an example like this, maybe we would say, look, maybe we have an hour to be to sort of safely delay intubation. And in that time, I can talk with the family and really clarify what we're doing. And if we can't reach some agreement by then, we'll intubate, even if it's ultimately not in her best interest. You know, something like that, where we could sort of reasonably... I love that. And I I felt like there, you know, if I, I was looking at a compass dial and like, you know, the dial was right on, do we intubate or not intubate? And as you had that second dialogue, it just the needle was just kind of shifting in a different direction, which I thought was really interesting. And now it was uh, more of a, you know, what direction do we need to go to be able to achieve both of these things, which the way it ended was, do we now call the family? Which is totally different than, should I go get the tube? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's sort of interesting about doing this is that some interests are really hard to say out loud and and you need some degree of psychological safety and a feeling of some respect in order to be willing to share your perspective honestly. So I can think back to other situations where I've the tone was so atrocious that I had zero interest in hearing their inter- interests or sharing mine. Um, and sometimes our interests are less saintly than thinking about the best mm-hmm. interest of the patient. Like, I want to do a procedure first thing in the morning. I don't want to say out loud that it's because I really want to get to my son's soccer game because I'm still going to be on call. Um, right. But maybe that's my interest. And, you know, I'm not explaining why it has to be first thing in the morning. You know, it's that kind of thing that I think we're all human. And and sometimes we don't know what our interest is. Right. So we just stick behind a position and we don't even realize what's driving right. it. And you need that moment to try to, to be like, oh, I'm being selfish right now. I get yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think when we get really emotional about those positions, those lines in the sand, it can help us realize, why am I getting so emotional about this? Maybe there's some, maybe there's some really important interests that I haven't explored or shared. So I think when we feel really emotional, it's probably a clue that there's more below the surface than we're necessarily aware of. So I'm going to come right out with it. My interest is in in playing tennis this afternoon. So uh, I would like to end this podcast. (laughs) 
Uh, Laura, what's your interest? Um, my interest is in um, making sure you get as much tennis as possible. That's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> my interest is in getting out of this hot kitchen with the windows closed. <laughs> My interest, right, well, actually, you. I'm on call tonight, so my interest is in hanging out with my kids a little and maybe trying to take a nap. So, uh-huh. Look at that. Interest. See, as we dig deeper, yeah. we see what her true interest is. Janice, All right, thank you so much, guys, for, for um, <laughs> explaining to our listeners what your workshop's about. I'm really excited about, about it. Thank you for joining, and uh, Laura, get some rest and hang out with your kids, and Dan, uh, go play tennis. Okay, Janice. Okay. Back to see ya. Bye. Bye. DJ Simulationistas, what's up? is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about CMS and learn about our simulation instructor training and course offerings at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.